0: Here we go, um, Kim. We you might have started something there. Phil and I were trying to focus on what you were saying after that, but um, I think I want to be more of an embracing community than a than an accepting community. Like that is that language very much on par with who we who we are and who we want to be. It's great. Struck a, struck a chord. All right, friends. Um, Bethany tells me, Keith, nobody needs to hear your 10-minute recap every week at the beginning of your sermons, so we're going to pretty much hop right in. Uh, I'm going to say two things, and I'm going to keep it very, very brief. Number one, if you haven't been traveling with us the last two weeks, you can catch up through the podcast, okay? Uh, number two, we, are, we have been working through Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis one The big idea is that God creates and is into creating communities and cultures of goodness. All right? And the second big idea from Genesis 2 is that people are created in God's image in order to partner with God. Okay. Here's the other interesting thing about that. In Genesis 1, God is mighty and mystical and above all and and just lofty. And people are created as the crowning achievement. Very lofty. And then you get a story that starts in Genesis 2. And God is way more personal. God walks. It's actually the first time God's name is Yahweh. At the beginning it's Elohim, which is just creator God in Genesis 1. Genesis 2, God has a name. God walks through a garden. God works with God's hands. And people, lofty in Genesis 1, are made from dirt in Genesis 2. So what we get is we get this incredible balance of both the high and mighty and holy and the great calling and the very earthy personal nature of both God and people. All right. And so we're, we're traveling and continuing in that. Uh, we, we continue to remind people that Genesis is a meaning-making document far more than a scientific document. Never was intended to be. That's a modern approach. Genesis is a meaning-making document that is primarily concerned with who and why of our origins rather than how and when, okay? All right, so we get this great story, um, and, and, uh, and it's leading us, actually, the Genesis 2 narrative, which is slightly different than Genesis 1, to help emphasize and magnify people. Uh, that continues, where Genesis 3 is a continuation of that story that begins in, in the third verse or fourth verse of Genesis 2. Uh, so, This is the first time we really dive into, truly dive into the relationship between humanity and divinity. And spoiler, right off the bat, it does not go so great. Okay, so if this is your first time encountering this story, uh, we're going to lay it out there. But second spoiler, this is actually a story about reality and redemption instead of failure and sin. So we're going to do some paradigm work today. This is a story about redemption, so I want you to listen and look, not about destruction. And this is the beginning of a story that is incredibly hopeful, and I want you to see it as a story of redemption. So we're gonna kind of work our way through and have some fun with it, um, but uh, but we'll we'll see we'll see where we head. So uh, all right, so we're just gonna hop right in. I have most of these up here uh, that we'll that we'll work from. But we're just going to kind of take our time uh, and and work through this story and and see what God's up to and and see how it might form us in a new way. Because remember, this is our story. This is our genesis, the story of the people of God and understanding who we are, what it's all about. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Okay, so this is, by the way, happening right after... we, you know, people are created. There's no partnership that can be found for the man, and so God creates a woman, and the man goes, oh my goodness, this is my equal, finally. This is, this is someone who is like, just like me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's what it's supposed to be about, not what we twisted into with gender dynamics. Um, this is someone who's just like me, on an evil even ground to work with and partner with. So, They've been told that they're supposed to do all kinds of good stuff. They're supposed to work the land. They're supposed to partner in the garden and that they're they're free to eat from anything except there was a tree that's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they're not supposed to eat from. Okay? They're free to eat of any other tree. All right. So here comes the woman and the serpent. Serpent comes up, says to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, right off the bat. We have this like twisted, twisting of what's real, right? Twisting of what's reality. So God says, hey, there's a limitation. I'll explain it later, but you just need to trust me for the moment. Don't eat that tree. Everything else is great. And the serpent says, did God really say, unbelievable, this guy. Unbelievable that he would do this to you, create all this wonderful stuff all around you, and then not even let you eat it. Twisting, twisting, right? And the woman says to the serpent, she like buys it, well, well we, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. As I recall, I don't actually remember seeing that second command that she just added, this extra parameter. So we don't know if she came up with this because she's like, yeah, he's such a, you know, killjoy. Or if Adam was like, I can't trust you with anything, so don't even touch that tree. God told me not to eat it, but I'm going to just make it harder. This is what Pharisees do, right? This is the, you know, so we see Phariseeism right off the bat. Maybe. We don't know. All we know is that the story has only gone one conversation deep, and it's already changing from what the truth was at the beginning. Tell me if that's not human nature, right? Like, this is, this is a story about humanity. Remember, this is us. Ah, uh, let's let the cat out of the bag. Okay. Eventually, we'll see that it's us. All right. So you must not touch. And also, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. That tree that's in the middle of the garden. Anybody remember anything about what's in the middle of the garden? Is there a tree in the middle of the garden? There's two trees in the middle of the garden. Yes. There are two trees that God plants in the middle of the garden. Okay. The first one. right the first one is the tree of life this is not the best color but here i'm gonna shade it a little bit all right so the first one is the tree of life now remember we totally missed this at the beginning. Adam and Eve are are instructed and encouraged to eat freely from the tree of life. We forget this. The tree of life. There we go. Go for it. Okay? And then there's a second tree. And this tree. Okay? This tree is the tree. It's a super clunky phrase. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. Confusing. Seems like a weird, arbitrary thing for God not to want people to eat from. But don't do that one. So there is a tree in the center. It's called the tree of life. And they are encouraged to eat freely from it. But she says, yeah, we're not allowed to eat from the tree that's right in the middle. You know, this is the center one. The one that's off limits. We're just longing for. Or you will die. Now, there's... Yeah, let's keep going. Okay. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Now, God does say this in the instruction. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or you will certainly die. You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. (sighs) Which is true. But here's the thing. I want you to just think through for a few moments. No, let's talk about a couple things. Let's talk about a couple things. Um, Number one, let's do good and evil. Number one, doesn't it seem like if you understand Jesus and if you've been journeying with Jesus and if you're familiar with the scriptures, that part of the hope of the scriptures is that we might learn to discern the difference between good and evil? Yeah, seems like it, right? It seems like what he's saying, well, if, if you eat from this, you'll be like, God, you'll know good and evil. Isn't that exactly what we are supposed to eventually be like? Like, seriously, look at Romans 12. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then what? You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Testing and approving, that seems like figuring out the difference between good and evil. And what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. Philippians 4, Paul's writing again. Finally, he says, hey, Finally, take time to focus on the things that are good and pursue them. Think about them. Dwell on them, not the things that are evil. I want you to be able to tell the difference. Paul talks many times to the early church about knowing the difference between right and wrong and growing up and not being spiritual babies anymore. And so so there's this whole sub-theme that says, wait a second, this is exactly what God wants, people to have the knowledge of good and evil. So, here's the thing. The, the knowledge of good and evil, I was, um, I was told once by um, a, a, one of my Hebrew professors who lived in Israel and taught in Israel for about a decade, and he says that according to Hebrew thought, everything is binary, good or evil. There is like no gray area in Hebrew thinking. It's just the way it is. It's, yeah, ancient Hebrews saw everything as one or the other. You know Why? God's people couldn't eat shellfish. They couldn't eat lobsters because lobsters walked on the ground, but in water things are supposed to swim. It was unnatural. So it's not like God's not behind it because if it's in the water, it should be swimming. If it's on the land, it should be walking. Lobster is freaky. So, so, this, is, so, so this is just to give you a little understanding of how this all works. So to talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to say complete understanding of everything. That is, like, good and evil embodies all of it <laughs> from the start to the finish. So, so this is the tree of, of knowing everything, not just, not just the binary of good and evil, but truly understanding everything alone, all right? So you've got the tree of knowledge of life that people are invited to do whatever with, and you've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is not theirs to eat from. The tree of knowing everything. The chapter places a choice before human beings. And the choice is, will you eat from the tree of life, which is about confidence, faith, trust, relationship, and fullness with God, living forever? Or or will you instead reach for this understanding on your own of anything that you can figure out, and therefore leading to self-sufficiency, independence, trusting only yourself, and no longer needing God to help walk with you through these things. So, so this, is, this is what's happening, all right? When God says, don't eat from this tree or you will surely die, God is saying, listen, if you decide to go in your own independent way, figuring things out from, for yourself, I'm not going to punish you by killing you. What's going to happen is you're going to experience death because you're going to start killing each other. And how many generations does that take? One. One generation. One generation before people start killing each other. And so, so this, this idea is, listen, listen. If you're, if you're trying to, to figure everything out on your own, independent of the way that I am trying to lead you in relationship, it's going to destroy you. And that is really important to keep in mind because of what happens in just a little bit, all right? So keep that in the back of your head. All right, so um, are we at—yes. Uh, all right, so they have this, this whole series of half-truths that happen um, with, with uh, the, the conversation between um, the serpent and, and the woman. Um, by the way, again— the serpent being exactly Satan is not linguistically Hebrew, what people are trying to do. It's, it's an adversary. It's, it's the, a challenger. But we've just, that's a modern day decision that we've made that. And, and Mel Gibson also um, helped with that if you watched um, The Passion of the Christ. So anyways, what, what we're saying is just take the story for what it is right now. Uh, so, so she's tempted. She gives in. She sees that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, right? Which again, is gaining wisdom a bad thing? Read the book of Proverbs. It is not a bad thing. But the way that you pursue it is the problem. So she sees that this is valuable, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. She said, oh, this is good. She gives some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then both of them the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what you see here is, you see, you see a loss of innocence. Like, we, we look at this as like the original sin and the first sin, and there's, there's a piece of that. But what we see is all of a sudden they grew up way too fast. They weren't ready to grow up in that way yet. They were children. So imagine a child who's three years old running around in diapers around the house and around the neighborhood, and all of a sudden you give them the wisdom and the insight of a 25-year-old, and all of a sudden, what do they do? They shriek and go into their room and slam the door, right? Wisdom is valuable, but the way you attain it and the speed at which you attain it and who you attain it from matters so much. And this is what we're starting to see here. So what ends up happening... Is they they realize that they're not wearing any clothes. By the way, the kids in Kids Life who are working this story out um, will be doing some role playing, but there is a a lanyard with a sign that says naked, just so you know. (laughs) I'm just gonna, no, all right. Just led some interesting conversations in the Miller house this week. Uh, So, all right, Um, so where are we? (laughs) Where are we at? Okay. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Just imagine. So just take this story on and just embrace the story for what it is. So God's having an afternoon walk. God's having an afternoon walk and God looks around. Yes, we know God's omniscient, right? I mean, we see that in the rest of the... That's not what this story is trying to do. And God's like, where are they? (laughs) We normally hang out like right around here at this like babbling brook. Still waters, still waters, because he likes to lead them beside still waters. So, so he looks around. He says, "Hey, where, where are you guys?" Which is, by the way, one of the most profound questions that God asks in all of the scriptures. Where are you at? Where are you at? And and God might know what He's asking, and wh- what God is asking is, why are you hiding? Why aren't you coming toward me? What's what just happened? And they answered. And Adam answers, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. So the first thing, the first experience you get of of sin, of brokenness entering the world is shame. Okay, shame is the first thing that comes in. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Um, And and, uh, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Did you do the one thing I asked you not to do? And of course, the second thing that enters right after the shame is the blame shift. Talk about humanity, man. Talk about humanity. So the blame shift, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Don't look at me. So God says to the woman, what, what have you done? And she goes, don't look at me. And, and she says, well, the serpent deceived me. So, so we, get, we get shame, we get blame shifting, and we get shirking Responsibility. Foundations of human behavior. <laughs> oh my goodness, there's so much here. But, all right, so, so what happens here? So there's the, the accounting of the, the basic storyline leading up to this. And so then what we get is we get God kind of going off in almost poetic form of what is often called the curses, the, the, the consequences, okay? And so he, he says to the serpent, we have no idea what this thing must have looked like before, but he tells him now he's got to crawl in his belly. So apparently, they all used to be like salamanders. And then God's like, well, now I'm going to take your legs off. Um, so we, but anyways, remember, a document this, like this, that is ancient, it's, it's, it's spirit-breathed and it's inspired, but it also held ancient worldviews. This was a document to say how things happened, how things came about. Why are there snakes that crawl in their belly? Well, they, they look a little shifty to me. I've always felt that way. I ran, o- I, I ran. literally ran over one last year because um, I'm a trail runner, and I stepped on a, a snake. I, I don't like snakes. I hate them. I love animals. I hate snakes. And I, and I literally crushed his head with my heel uh, because he was a small little guy. And I, I ran away, and I jumped like six feet in the air, you know, sprung board off, and that did not help him. Um, but, but anyways, I ran away, and I, I felt this really weird mix of compassion because I truly do love living things um and like vindication because they have terrified me so many times out there alone on on the trails but I do hope he was all right um I'm sorry <laughs> what on earth okay friends all right I'm going to oh yeah the curses okay so so um so God says to the serpent, because you've done this, curse are you above all livestock, all wild animals. You're going to crawl in your belly. You're going to eat dust all the days. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now that actually is considered what's called in Greek language the proto-euangelion, the first glimpse of what would ultimately be the good news, okay? So that's where people make the connection between the snake and, and Satan, um, the idea of, that, that the, the offspring of the woman would one day have this power battle and, and ultimately win. To the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to your children. Again, this is, this is answering questions such as why is it painful to bring life into the world? Why is work hard? Because Adam, in a moment, he says, uh, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit, um, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It's going to produce thorns and thistles and you'll eat plants in the field. By the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you'll return. So he talks about how death is now going to enter the equation. Never was before. But all of these things help answer big deep questions about humanity that people were asking. Why is there pain and suffering? Why is there evil in the world? And it's because Perfection was broken at some point. And, and, and it, it's traced back to the fact that people and God are not living in full unity. That's the, that's the ancient wisdom answer that I think there's a ton of truth in still today. But, but that's the questions that were being asked. Now, I do have to say one thing about it that I skipped over at the end of verse 16. Um, did I put it in here? No, not yet. Okay. So, uh, in verse 16, it talks about the childbearing stuff. And then, and then uh, God says to Eve... She hasn't been named Eve yet. She's about to be. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> Historically, this passage has been taken to say, hey, this is just the way things are. This, you know, this is, this is it. You know, and, and, and women, your desire is going to be for your husband, and, and he's going to rule over you. Now, now two things. Uh, that are problematic with this, first of all, uh, I want to get through this quickly, but it's it 's so worth it. Uh, desire has been interpreted over the years as either like sexual desire like they want us really badly or or um, a desire to serve. This has been what theologians have have taken this with, um, but that 's not at all what desire means it doesn 't mean either of those things that 's the same word that in, in the next chapter Abel. Um, and Cain, that story, when God warns Cain because jealousy is brewing, he says, sin, it desires you, so be careful. So it's a desire to control. So, so what's actually being talked about here is that as a result of the fall, there will be this, this, this reality of tension between genders, and, and, and one will desire to control and the other will desire to tyrannize, which is where rule comes from. But, but the interesting thing here is that like, this was all done by, by men, by male theologians until like the 60s. And then we finally had, like because of educational opportunities, we finally had some really brilliant female theologians start to emerge. And so in the 60s, this is only, what, 60 years ago now, they started looking and doing work on a passage that nobody had ever done work on before. And they were like, uh, yo, this, this is, first of all, this is, this is the curse, not the ideal. This is the curse, like, this one should be just, a, just basic. You don't even need, you don't need any degrees for that one. Um, but, but this is not ideal. This is a glimpse into brokenness, okay? But secondly, they found the phrase in Hebrew um, is not the imperative, but it's the indicative. It's, it's stating what is, not what will be or should be. You look around, you see how people just fight, and there's tension here because one desires to control and the other desires to manipulate, and it goes back and forth, and there's a battle This is what life is like, and it's, you know, you can see it in the first story, and it's a result of God's, of of the curse of sin. So, what that means, you know, is that as a result of the fall, you know, uh, marriage and relationships between genders are often going to be a power struggle, all right? But it's a sign of brokenness. So, History has obviously proven this to be true. But this is not the type of marriage we should be aspiring for. It is the type of marriages we should be conspiring against. Okay? All right. Fair enough. Moving on. Verse 21. This is where it starts to get really interesting. All right. So um, Adam names his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all of the living. So this is the first time that childbirth is talked about. And so what we get, again, the names are just cool. It doesn't mean anything here or there. But Adam is earth, the earth um, and, and the, the human, but of the earth is, is the connotation, the imagery, and Eve is of the living or mother of all life, and so what you get is you get the birth of humanity in this beautiful way, and if you turn into scientific, then you find, then you start to ask these questions of, like, where on earth did Cain's wife come from, and why, when Cain got banished, did he go and start building a city? For who? It's not the right question, so we're not going to talk about it, but, but, the, this is the, the the imagery that is so rich in this story. Okay, um, all right. So this is so what ends up happening? People make a choice toward independence, toward self knowledge. There is a loss of innocence because they have failed to continue on with God, with learning knowledge and wisdom and what's good and evil God's way, and instead said, "I think I'd like to to accelerate this." And all of a sudden it leads to problems. And as a result, there is massive shame. And what is God's response to the shame of the first original humanity? To say, I told you that you shouldn't be embarrassed because you're naked, so I'm taking those fig leaves away. Nope. Or, you better learn how to live with this. No. No, God's first action toward people after this, this, this fall is to actually cover their shame permanently. Ha, through sacrifice, by the way. Yeah, just put that back there. This whole story is written to illuminate a larger story. We'll get to that in a second. So, <clears throat> so God's first action post-fall is redemptive. God's first action is redemptive. It's compassion, okay, which then links to the next thing, because if you can't see compassion at the beginning, you're not going to be able to see it here. So what ends up happening right after that is the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, a little Trinitarian theolo- theology there seeping in, has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay, well this sounds unfair. All right, so all of a sudden, here's what has happened. Here's what has happened. So, the tree of life, remember, was always on limits, not off limits, on limits. And the the tree of the knowledge of all things was off limits until God would work with them to understand it all. But here's what happens. They said, oh, okay. Actually, no, we'll keep that on this side. They said, we're going to actually go for this. All right? And then God says, hold up. Then this one's out now. And here's the reason why. Here's my question to you, friends, church. Is it because God does not want people to live forever? No, we're going to see that in a second. That's clearly not it. But God says they must not be allowed to reach out, reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. And there's a parenthetical understanding, and that is in this state. Because if they continue in this way charting their own course but also with the ability to live forever then they are going to create cultures of perpetual destruction. So this is off limits <laughs> for a time. For a time until you learn unity with God, until you learn to grow up and become a mature people because Adam and Eve they were naive and they were innocent and they weren't ready. And so you get a story that is God saying, you can't experience fullness of life while you're in this state. So what ends up happening is that the Lord says, you can't can't stay here. You have to move on. Now God, he banishes them from the Garden of Eden, not from his presence, not in the same way. In this little miniature story, somewhat, yes. But what we see is that that's not what, what God is saying. But he's saying, this isn't going to work, not as you are right now. Okay? So there has to be a path and something that changes. Um, and so what is so, so fascinating, right after this, um, so he drives the man out, and he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden um, a, uh, an angel, and this angel's got a flaming sword back and forth, guarding the way to the Tree of Life. It's a protective measure in the interim time. That's what this is. Until the right time, you can't eat of this, okay? It will destroy you. You can't do both. You can't, you, can't have, you can't experience the fullness of life while saying I'm gonna be independent, figuring everything out for my own, doing what I want at my speed, at my pace. It's, it just won't work. There's gonna be something off in your alignment and eventually you're gonna rationalize the wrong thing and you're gonna start destroying people. Okay? And so that's the story that's happening here. And so, uh, but here's the coolest thing. You ready for this? So there's, a, there's an angel guarding the way to the tree of life. And Jesus eventually comes on the scene, and he says when he's teaching that I am the way, exact same word, just the, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word, I am the way <laughs> and the truth and the life. <laughs> But you get this balance between saying, right now in this state, you can't experience the way to life. And Jesus says, I'm coming, and I am the way to life. And and so so this is it. This is the beginning of the story. And we can't understand the first beginning of the story unless we understand the end of the story. Okay? Okay. Will you trust and listen to God and find God's ways to find life or will you go about deciding your own way? When the connection to the author of life is cut off, death will follow. Uh, Dr. Terry Brensinger says, the heart of the gospel is weaning people from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and moving back under the tree of life. And that is ultimately the, uh, the hope. Because look at this. Revelation, by the way, is the story of God's ultimate redemption. All right, it's a vision given to John, to the Apostle John, that reminded God's people that one day good will indeed win out and ju- injustice will be wiped off the face of the earth and people will be able to live in fullness of joy and in societies that are characterized by peace, love, compassion, and justice. And what's the imagery that he gets? A river with the water of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. That's Jesus. Jesus down the middle of a great street of the city, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life. This tree of life is now bigger. It's so big that it actually has two legs that encompass an entire river of life flowing through it. And, and check it out. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, that's symbolic n- uh, numbers, to talk about crops for everyone. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations. So guess what happens? <laughs> right? Right? Guess what happens? Ultimately... As a result of the understanding that Jesus brings and the redemption that Jesus brings and the sacrifice that Jesus brings, when God heals this all, what we get is access once again to this beautiful tree of life. So you've got two points. The first one in a story like this is, will you trust and listen to God and follow his ways to find life? And the second point is that God is always working to redeem people in the midst of ongoing temptation to independence. God is always working to redeem. So this is a story of naive people struggling to learn trust and trying to make it on their own, which is a human temptation that is so deeply ingrained in all of us, and we know it. All right? Um, And God refuses to give up on those people, even though they keep trying to do life independently in God's ways. But the story is not over, right? God always works to care for them and move them back toward life. So the power of Genesis isn't that it happened as much as that it happens. Okay? Uh, We are a tree-reaching people. We are constantly vacillating between connection with God and seeking to be independent. And it pulls us apart. We are constantly trying to make our own way apart from a loving creator even though we have a sense that there's beauty there. We want autonomy. We are made for community. And yet... Even in the midst of the failures, God continues to work with us for relationship and redemption. All right, so last part of all this. It goes deeper, because this story was not written just to be a story that explains the start of humanity, and it was not written just to be a story that continues to play out in humanity. It's also telling the story of Israel. The book of Genesis is a part of the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch was written during the Babylonian exile in the history of the the Hebrew people. That's the time of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah was the prophet. And and God's people had been removed from the land that they were settling in because they had forgotten and forsaken God. And in their independence, they had begun worshiping idols and not caring for people. And as a result, their society falls apart and Babylon comes in and takes them out of their own land and spreads them out okay? And they're in exile. This is when the stories, because all of a sudden the people are disconnected and the oral stories that they used to tell each other around the campfires, you can't do that as much anymore. And they're like, number one, we have to keep our shared history together. But number two, we have to somehow hold on to hope that God's not done with us. And so this story which certainly on, in some forms has been told beforehand for generations, but this story is written down during this time, okay? And so it was, it was an identity-forming story to remind people to keep hope in God's faithfulness and to not lose it. And so here's, the, like, because of this loss of story, or because of, of the story we looked at today, it's really bleak, right? Like, this this beginning story is really bleak. It ends up with people all over the place. And what did Adam and Eve just experience? They just experienced a loss of land. They experienced a loss of life. And they experienced a loss of relationship. Now, a few chapters later, which we'll dive into next week, we meet a guy named Abraham. And God reaches out to Abraham and says, I want to form a society that are going to be my people, founded on you. And what are the promises? I'm going to bring you into a promised land where you will have enough. Abraham and his wife Sarah were barren. They couldn't have children. I am going to supernaturally bring life out of a dead womb. Okay? And I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people and we are going to walk together in something called a covenant which we're going to have a bit of fun with next week. Isn't this cool? We get all excited about this stuff. Isn't this cool? This is the redemptive ark and Genesis knows this. Genesis is hinting at this hope of what's coming. And so we have to understand this story as it goes from the whole thing. Not just a few chapters in Genesis but Genesis through Revelation going through the prophets that are trying to call them back. Going through the patriarchs who were really messed up but God was still faithful with. Going through the emptiness of the times of of God's people trying to have kings and God saying this doesn't work like this because you're going to get power hungry and it doesn't work and it breaks down and God continues to work with them. And eventually, God says, listen, the only way that this can happen is if I send myself to help you understand what my heart really is and invite you into relationship with something you can truly understand. But it starts here. It's a whole story. We got to get the whole story, friends. Um, It's just so beautiful. All right. Um, But for now, God is always redeeming. And it's not contingent on us getting it right. There is redemption on the first pages of our whole story. From the first to the last pages, there is redemption. There is sacrificial love from the Creator. Um, And, you know, we should not read it like the original Hebrew people read it, to be honest. Because they read it holding on to hope that maybe God will rescue us one day. We are on this side of Jesus. The ultimate redemption has occurred, right? So breaking the power of the curse and opening us up to freedom and life with God. This, so the sacrifice of and, and love of the creator is made known fully on the cross. But yet we got to admit, right, that we still long for that ultimate taste of Revelation's tree of life. Like we still long for it. We still feel like we're in the midst of a redemptive arc, don't we? Because we are. So we sit with this story in gratitude and in hope and holding together these weird truths that redemption is unearned, that redemption is ongoing. Oh, thanks, forgot I made a slide for this. And that redemption is already accomplished. So, so we, th- this story moves us into that. It's unearned, it's ongoing. We still need redemption every single day. <gasps> God help, draw me toward the tree of life, not toward the tree of me figuring out all of life on my own, also known as the knowledge of good and evil. And put me at peace because I know that ultimate redemption has actually been accomplished. The tomb is empty, the pressure's off, and I can walk in life. Woo! It's a good message. That's the the scripture story, not mine. Good message, right? Tap God on the bat. Um, Okay. Yeah. If you're wondering about all of this and be like, this is a different take on, like, the most depressing chapter in the Bible, um, just remember this. The stories of the scripture were written to show something surprising. The reason that we don't talk a ton about sin is because we all get it. There's nothing surprising about sin. You don't have to explain it. We all know it. We all feel it. Like we all get the brokenness and the selfishness and the propensity to do our own thing. The surprise is the redemption of a God who cares so much that God continues to change the plans to work with people and to, and to rescue. So that's where it comes down at. Awesome. All right. Um, may that be good news for us today. A God always willing to restore broken relationship, even from the first pages. Oh, good stuff. Let's pray just for a moment, and then uh, we'll throw some questions up on the screen and have just a couple minutes for dialogue. Lord, we know that was just a ton of information. So help settle what needs to stick with us. Uh, we don't want to just become more aware, we want to become more spirit aware. So help move us toward your heart in the midst of studying the scriptures. Help us connect with what you want to speak. Amen.